I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Representative Mikey Sherrill of New Jersey. We discuss the country's childcare crisis, inequalities in our school system, and how both have been exacerbated by the pandemic. We also talk about two pieces of childcare legislation that recently passed in the House, the Child Care is Essential Act and the Child Care for Economic Recovery Act. Both, of course, are stuck in the Senate. Lastly, we talk about Biden's child care plan to invest $775 billion in child care, elder care, and universal pre-K. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Representative Mikey Sherrill. Representative Mikey Sherrill, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So you're in Congress, which means you're working a lot. You know, there's a pandemic and you have four children. <laughs> so how, how tired are you? <laughs> I am tired, but I think September 10th, when school starts again and, and my school district is all virtual, I'm about to be a lot more tired, if that's possible. I was wondering how that works. So your school district is all virtual. So you'll have to have four children online and kind of manage that whole process? Yes. Yeah, so we, our schools, you know, I'm from northern New Jersey. So the pandemic hit us kind of first and hardest. We had a, a really horrible outbreak and it peaked in the middle of April. So we started to see it coming and um, March 12th, I believe, was the last day of school for my kids. So they have not been back to school physically since uh, March 12th. So we did um, the spring, much of the spring semester, we did at home. We we got through it. We're going to get through it again. But it's not a great way for kids to learn. So it wasn't a great way for my kids. I think some kids have, have acclimated better. But uh, it wasn't a great way for my kids to learn. And you know, as you sort of said, so you need to have four kids on the computer, four kids on a computer, four kids on the internet at the same time. I'm on the internet because I was working from home. My husband was working from home. So six people in our household were utilizing the internet, had, you know, had different iPads and computers to try to get our work done. And I felt lucky that we were able to do that because I know there's so many families across the nation that don't have that ability. Right. I was seeing some story yesterday about some kids, you know, they have to sit outside of the library or outside of some restaurant to get, you know, Wi-Fi access, which is really, really sad, which kind of speaks to, you know, the the issues that were of inequality that were there to begin with, even before the pandemic. It speaks to the issues of inequality and it speaks to that drive. I, I think in, in another way, it also shows you just how important our public schools are and having a strong public school system and big believer in public schools and and to show how hard families are working to get their kids that education because they know how important it is. That's a horrible story. No kid should have to sit in a parking lot trying to get internet access, but that shows you how critical this is to families across the nation and how we've just got to do better. Yeah. And I'm a little bit, speaking of kids at home, I'm a little bit better off, I guess, or luckier than, than well, yeah, I don't have four kids. I have two kids and only one is school age. So the other one is, you know, not going to be on a computer, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Maybe in that sense, but I, I also know how hard it is to get work done with a toddler (laughs) I think we're all kind of in it up to our eyeballs right now yeah and they eat a lot that's one thing I've learned during the pandemic the people in my house they consume a lot of food (laughs) all the time and I think some of it has to do with boredom too like when they get bored and want attention they kind of come to you for to fix them something and and I'm just as bad I have certainly put on a few pounds during the yes. virus thanks to my snacking program which isn't working for me so yeah I, I I hear you anxiety snacking 
But um, so one of the things that that's been uncovered is or that's been in the spotlight, rather, because it hasn't been uncovered. It's always been there is the gender disparity in pay. Right. And, right. you know, there's been lots of reports that have been coming out that said that during the pandemic, men will probably be more productive. You know, they'll be more prolific and they'll probably reap, you know, more economic benefits, just depending on the industry, but just overall. Right. In comparison to women. And that's one of the things that is going to come out. You know, women, again, are going to come out, you know, on the bottom of this probably, you know, how do we fix something like that? You know, something that's, you know, partly deeply cultural. How do we fix that with policy? Well, Jen, I I mean, you have really hit the nail on the head for some of my concerns, because I'll tell you what this looks like in, in, say, my neighborhood. I have a lot of friends. I'm in the suburbs of New York City. So a lot of people have a job in the city and then they have kids and they move to the suburbs, but they still have their job in New York. And it's really difficult with children to do the commute, to not be able in the middle of the day to just run home to see a school play or or something that your kid's doing at school field day, something like that. So many, many parents and a lot of times moms make the decision to cut back on their job, either become a contractor or go part-time or come up with a more flexible schedule so that they can, they can, you know, see more of their family. And yet those I've seen, those have been the first jobs to go in the pandemic. Those jobs have been the ones that, you know, the contracts aren't renewed or the part-time workers are cut. So we've seen women losing ground in that way. There was a study on the gendered impact of the pandemic, noting that 19 million children live in a single parent household and 70% of those households are led by single moms. So I can tell you as, as a working mom with a husband who's also working, it's been really, really difficult. If this, if this burden was totally on me, that would make it exponentially more difficult to, to get my job done. Um, and so I, I know we have so many women that are struggling. We also, I was on the phone um, just recently with a, a woman from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and she was talking about how the men are just churning out research papers because they don't have to classes they're really putting all their effort and work into some of their research and they're they're getting such great results and and it's been striking that the women um as of the last time i talked to them weren't doing the same and yet i totally understood it right so here you are you know you know if you're working in your office even if you have to teach classes still working in an office without your kids coming into snack every five minutes is still more productive than not having to teach classes, but trying to work from home when you have small kids that you're trying to also take care of and meet their needs, and especially when it's school season, you want to make sure that they're getting their schoolwork done. It in some ways becomes really difficult to even get your basic job done at the same time. So um, I, I really worry about all of the losses that um, that women are experiencing during this. Week. So you know what's really interesting about this conversation that we're both having is that we're living it, right? And we're talking about it from a policy perspective. I mean, because if we're real, you know, a lot of this is going on in our own households, right? And I'm thinking about my relationship and, and, you know, with my husband in relation to childcare, we both work full-time. He has always made more than I have, even when we're in the same industry. And, you know, a lot of families who are kind of in a position like ours have to make a decision about, you know, who gets to spend more time 
on work and who gets to spend more time on childcare, given the fact that the economy is unstable and, you know, our children are, are at home and people are losing jobs, right? That's a real decision that people have to make. Exactly. And, and it's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, I was in the same type of situation. My husband and I both graduated from the Naval Academy in 1994. I served for about nine and a half years. He served for about seven and a half. And so he had finished up business school and gotten a job and was already established in his career by the time I had gotten out and went to law school. And so as we started to have a family, his paycheck was really the one that was most critical. Um, You know, we would have really had to significantly downsize if we were relying on my paycheck. And that kind of carried over. And then, of course, um, as you go forward, um, I was the one that was pregnant. Uh, I'm so happy to see more and more men taking paternity leave. But even in 2005, when I had my first child, um, that wasn't routinely done. So I was the one taking maternity leave. And then because I was on maternity leave, I was the one figuring out childcare for our children because he was still working. So all of these things sort of set up a system where I was really in charge of so much of the childcare. And then so many families are, are, are sort of in similar situations. And you're right, when it comes down to, well, look, we don't have any childcare options. Who's gonna, you know, who's gonna have to stay home and take care of the children, and who's gonna go to work? It, it's, you know, in that type of a situation, and in my family, it would have made sense for me to do it because he would have been the one making more money to to keep our family going. So, those decisions are being made, um, and then, and, and so when we're talking about the policy, and this, I would say, some of this is even pre-pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic. I think it's so critical. We get money to schools, we get kids back to school, and we get money into childcare centers. And and I would argue that pre-pandemic, the childcare in this nation was not where it needed to be to really empower women, especially, but all working parents to go back to work with that that great feeling that your kid is in, you know, in enriching childcare and they're safe and they're taken care of while you're working. Yeah, that's a really good point. You're absolutely right. There was a childcare crisis before the pandemic, right? And I want to talk about that later because I think the picture right now for me, when I was thinking about what's happened with childcare during the pandemic, it's a really mixed picture. You've got, you know, parents who are working from home, right? And childcare isn't either available or it isn't safe. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you've got those 19 million people, you know, those 19 million single parent households. Right. And that's a, another another issue. And presumably there's a lot of overlap with essential workers there. And then you've mm-hmm. got the child care workers themselves. So, I mean, can you you know, sum up how the pandemic has exacerbated this child care crisis? Well, we you know, I've heard from so many people in my district who run child care centers and it already was a business model where, you know, they, they, were, they didn't have a lot of profit to begin with. They didn't have a lot of money stored away in the bank. And so when the pandemic hit and and nobody felt safe putting their children in childcare, in many states, including mine, childcare, you know, certain um, care centers were closed. It really hit those that industry incredibly hard. We know that many of the childcare centers without real support from the federal government won't be opening their doors again. And on the ground, just to, and I know you know this, Jen, you probably experienced the same thing, you know, there were waiting, you know, there were wait lists of a year or more to get into a lot of the child care, a lot of the child care in my town. And so if you're a mom and you're working and you get pregnant and you, you think, okay, well now I'm going to go figure out what I'm going to do with child care. And, and you have a year wait, or even if you can get your child into child care, many of the child care centers don't take very young babies and maybe you have to get back to work and sit 
states. This all adds to the problem. So that's why the HEROES Act put $58 billion into school and child care funding, because it's so critical to support this interest rate. I think this is going to be important, not just to enhance the coronavirus, but for really empowering women as we go forward and, and past coronavirus. But I think the money is critical. It costs a lot um, when you're having low class sizes, when you're having a lot of PPE gear, when, you know, I've heard from some schools when they, they said, if I'd known, you know, a couple months ago, what I know now, I would have bought stock in plastics because they're putting <laughs> uh, plastic sheeting, you know, they're trying to put the, do the plexiglass and just make sure everyone's safe. So I think critical that we put money into it, but really, I have to say, I mean, the number one thing we have to do, and this goes for our schools and our childcare centers and, and our small businesses and so many, so much of our economy and our industry, is we've got to get the virus under control. And that's that's the, the plan. You know, that was the number one thing on the plan that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have put forward is getting the virus under control. And, and I'll tell you what's heartbreaking to me is that we missed an opportunity in this country to do that. And because we didn't get the virus under control, now our children are paying for it. Because like I said, my kids are gonna go back virtually, we're gonna do the best we can, but it's not the same. And they're not really receiving a great education right now. And, and that's for a family like mine who can actually get their kids online. So many children across the country aren't even going to get that that basic level of instruction. So speaking of the Biden campaign, um, you know, I know they've proposed something like seven hundred and seventy five billion dollars, I think, overall. And part of that includes and, you know, this is, again, beyond, you know, the pandemic free preschool for three to four year olds. Right. Of course, right now, in many states, like you said, they're they're long waiting lists. There's no free child care before kindergarten. And I remember my own mom and this was, you know, ages ago, you know, when I was four, she opted to just put me into kindergarten early because, you know, childcare was so expensive. Has a childcare package of this size, I know in my my memory, in my adulthood, I don't remember anything being proposed at the presidential level of this size. Yeah, I I think it's such a great proposal because I know I, I come from a background of criminal justice reform. And when we look at things that that can really make a difference in in helping people and not having students on the, the school to prison pipeline, as we say, one of the best things you can do is invest in early childhood education. And you know, it's not necessarily intuitive, right? How does investing in a three-year-old give you gains for a 15-year-old down the road? It, it doesn't necessarily make intuitive sense, but when you look at all the studies, a dollar invested in preschool can save society $7.16 in, in just the outcome of that individual. And so I think it's such a, it's such a good idea it's such a, a great, thoughtful, holistic idea to invent in early, to invest in early childhood pre-K. And too many times in this country, and this is not a, a Republican or Democratic thing, this is a societal thing, too many times in our country, we don't want to put the upfront investment in things we know work, and we'd almost rather just pay when prices hit. So we don't pay for Head Start, but we pay billions of dollars in prisons across the nation. Um, we don't pay for preventative health care, but we end up paying billions in medical costs as we care for people in emergency rooms or if we care for diabetes or if we care for, you know, we care for people with really bad health outcomes. So I, I think the plan to invest in early childhood education could not only reap great rewards for our society and our country, but I also think it's just it, it could just really have a huge impact on individuals' lives. 
and their opportunities down the road. So can you talk about the two pieces of legislation that just passed in the House? There's the Child Care Essential Act and the Child Care for Economic Recovery Act. So what do those cover exactly? And I know in the House we've passed, um, there's a $50 billion child care stabilization fund. These are the community development block grants you may have heard of. And these awards kind of stabilize the industry. And then the Child Care for Economic Recovery Act that we passed in the House helps bring quality child care within reach of, of people, provides tax credits to support different providers. It makes uh, the child and dependent care tax credit refundable, allowing low and middle income families to claim the credit for the first time. It expands things like the dependent care flexible spending accounts, which roughly doubles the amount that can be contributed to an FSA and provide flexibility for families who have unforeseen changes in dependent care needs, especially as a result of COVID. It helps create a new 30% refundable payroll tax credit for eligible employee dependent care benefits paid by employers. This is really, a lot of this goes towards stabilizing the child care market, but I, I love to hear the ideas that the Biden campaign has on really looking at how we take care of families. And I think that's what's so impressive of these broad reaching plans. So both of those are bipartisan, right? The Child Care Essential Act and the Child Care Economic Recovery Act. Is that true? I, I believe they were both bipartisan and passing through the House, but we have not gotten a vote on them. What What are the chances of that in the Senate? Um, probably. <laughs> I well, I, I, you know, unfortunately, um, Senator McConnell prides himself on killing bills. I think he's called himself the Grim Reaper or something of, of bills. Oh, so that's never hopeful. Um, but this is such a critical need. If we want to restart our economy, we've got to take care of childcare. It's, you know, if we want to get parents back to work, we've got to figure out how we're going to care for their children. And it's not just getting, you know, all of this is tied together. If we want to get kids back to school, we, we have to make sure teachers have good childcare. If we want to get people back to work, we, we need to make sure parents have good childcare and parents can get their kids back to school. So, so all of these things kind of are part and parcel of what we have to do for an economic recovery. So tell me, so what do we do between now and January? You know, so, you know, Biden and Harris, Kamala Harris, they win in November. Right. Let's just assume that. Yeah. And you, the pandemic. Knocking on wood. But the pandemic is still going to be with us. Not only that, you know, November from now till January, I think there's like five more months. You know, it's only going to get worse. The child care crisis is only going to get worse. What can we do between now and then, especially with, you know, like you said, McConnell, things being frozen in the Senate? How can we get relief to families and to child care workers? Well, we have been fighting in the House night and day to get more relief, to get another coronavirus bill passed, and we're not going to stop. Um, we will, you know, hopefully, I had actually, the House is on a, you may not know this, the House is on a 24-hour recall notice, meaning that we have to get to Washington within 24 hours to vote because we are hoping to get a new coronavirus package, and I had hoped we'd already have a vote on that, and, and really, uh, you know, I, I, to know how how much families and businesses in my district are struggling and not see any legislation passed is, is really, really upsetting. And, and I'm hoping we see something pass soon. But I think what we, you know, what we'll continue to do is fight for that kind of funding, fight for families. And then what we've done in the Northeast is we've addressed this with a regional approach because I, I can't say enough, and this is something Governor Murphy, my governor in New Jersey says all the time, in order to address the economic crisis, you have to address the public health crisis. 
We've got to get this virus under control if we are going to help kids get back to school, if we're going to help people get back to work. And we have done that regionally. I started a Northeast Regional Recovery Task Force. I know my governors worked with the other governors in the Northeast region. And if you look at the heat map of the country, um, you see that when you, when you really do the things the CDC tells you to do, when you follow the suggestions that quite frankly, Biden and Harris have put into their five-point plan to get kids back to school, it works. Um, you know, you really can make a difference. And so I think across the country, because of the lack of federal leadership, because this president refuses to lead in this crisis, states are going to have to get together regionally so that they can address the pandemic and ensure that they drive cases down. And that in involves contact tracing, that involves testing, that involves following best practices of the CDC. We've seen masks work incredibly well, uh, making sure schools are ready. That's why, you know, as I said, the first step is getting the virus under control, but the Biden-Harris second step of the plan is setting national safety guidelines but empowering local decision-making. So telling people, what are, you, what are the guidelines? What, what are best practices? What, what is the CDC saying? You know, how do we keep people safe? And then saying, okay, you're on the ground in your local district. You know what's going on in your district. Can you safely get kids back to school? Uh, and, and these are all the things we are looking at. But until we get, you know, a President Biden and a Vice President Harris, I just like saying that, <laughs> we get them in their seats, um, I think we're going to have to handle a lot of this as best we can regionally. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And that's the thing that, that we've been desperately missing is guidance on the national level, right? No one really knows what to do because there's this, you know, block between the CDC and science and between like local districts, right? And so that's going to be really a relief for me personally and to, to all of us. But it also speaks to the fact that we need to invest in both our local governments and federally. So, you know, not just thinking about, you know, the upcoming presidential election, but voting in good representatives like yourself and like the ones I have in Washington state. So when, you know, you have a situation like this, when your federal government kind of fails in a pandemic, which we won't have that in a Biden-Harris administration, but you do have local help. I mean, I have a great, I have a great governor. I'm in Washington state. I have great representatives, but, you know, they may be doing the right thing for our state, but there are other other states where children and child care workers and families are kind of suffering and they don't have the representation that I have. You're exactly right. I think we really saw Washington state set the model. You had a very proactive governor, even though New York and New Jersey had several lines of the virus coming in, which really made our outbreak you know, one of the worst outbreaks in the nation, Washington state had the vector that came in mostly to the long-term care facility and was one of the earliest hit but I think because of the early action by your governor and because the delegation worked so well together and so well with the governor, your representation, your, your state and local and, and you know, representation and federal delegation was able to work hard to handle that. It's not perfect. I, I mean, quite frankly, what we need is federal leadership. We need the Defense Production Act. We need our, our factories producing PPE gear so people are safe. We need to make sure we have enough ventilators. We need to make sure that, you know, states aren't fighting over PPE gear and ventilators and driving prices up. All this needs to be handled at a federal level. Um, and, and that's why I think it's so critical that we get Biden and Harris. And it, it, it just, it's hard to see. I've been advocating for months now for the president and his administration to 
take a leadership role. And it's, it's so difficult without it, because even though I just talked about the Northeast, even though we've seen the elected leadership in Washington state do so well, when even if you get control of the virus in your own state, we're so interconnected. If the rest of the country is having huge outbreaks of the virus, you know, you still can't open up the way you want to. New Jersey is, is the center of the East Coast. We, you know, we're not an island. We're the most densely populated state in the nation. People are in and out of New Jersey all the time. And so we've set up guidelines and quarantine guidelines, but but it's really difficult to ensure that our citizens are going to be safe if there's if, if there's an outbreak of the virus across the country. But what do we do about kids who are heading back to school now, right? Probably this week, some are remote learning, you know, especially given all of the inequalities that we talked about earlier. And, you know, those families that have to send their kids back to school. And they're nervous about that because we don't have a national plan or any national guidance. Well, I I really just wanted to highlight um, closing the COVID educational equity gap. I, I, I think that is going to be critical in the months to come. We've seen now that not all education is going to be um, equal across the country. We know that there are kids suffering. We know that there are kids that are not receiving the type of education they need to be successful. We are going to have to come up with ways, thoughtful ways of making sure that we close that gap. I know that's something that Biden and Harris have highlighted. I think it's a critically important thing to highlight because we cannot have there are so many ways I want to make sure this pandemic doesn't harm families for the for decades to come, but critically important is making sure that it doesn't harm the future of our children. We've got to make sure that we address the the learning gap that we are seeing across the nation as soon as possible. Um, but thank you. It's been really great talking to you, and I've really enjoyed being on your show, so thanks. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you again. 